All right, church family, as the offering plates are coming around, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, we are going to be in Philippians for the next five weeks. If you're familiar with our larger church family, this is the window of time in which all nine of our campuses have some freedoms to uh, preach and address things that they want to talk about at their campuses. For us, we decided that this year, uh, for these next five weeks, we would walk through the book of Philippians because it has a timely word for us. The subtitle of our series is, or the title of our series is Finding Joy Wherever You Are. So let me ask you, where are you today? Some of you are like, we're, we're in the church house, right? Yes, physically you're here with us or maybe you're at home watching online. That's great, physically this is where we are. But let me ask you this question, where are you emotionally? Where's your mind and your heart today? Where are you spiritually? Where are you relationally? You see, all of us are on various journeys. We're at point A, right? We're trying to get to, to point B. And so some of us are on the parenting journey, right? We're at point A. We're, we're trying to get point B, to raise kids who know and love God. Some of us are on a career journey. We're at point A and we're trying to figure it out, how we can do what we love and, and still be able to provide for our families at the same time. Some of us are on a health journey. We're at point A, right? And we're, we're trying to get to point B, to a place of greater wholeness and, and healing. There are all of these different journeys that we're taking in life. And yesterday I found myself along with a couple of my kids on a journey. I spent this week preaching for the North Carolina Baptist Convention at a camp in Oak Island. Uh, it is about a, a 10 and a half hour drive away. And so I wanted to be back to preach this sermon. So this is sermon number 15 that I've preached in the last eight days. So um, yeah, well, thank you for that, right? So I wasn't looking for a gold star. I don't, don't, don't hear me wrong on that. I just want to tell you that I, I wanted to be back. I felt like I needed to be back to kick off this series and preach this one. Uh, and so I love to preach to you guys and it motivates me. So we got up at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time and we began to make our way back uh, across North Carolina, the entire length of it back into Tennessee and back home. I, I punched into the coordinates into Google and I told my wife, we'll be home about five o'clock. Guess what time we got home? It was not five o'clock. Do you know how many construction zones there are in the state of North Carolina? It's like in the summertime, Department of Transportation, they're just like, we need to put some barrels here. Drive a few miles. You know what? We just need to put some barrels here. Now, now some more barrels over here. And very rarely do you actually see construction taking place. But it's like, we're just gonna throw up construction barrels everywhere. And then you have your, you know, your, your normal stops for things like the bathroom and to grab some, some fast food. Inevitably in the summer, you pull in, you find the spot and there's a charter bus full of teenagers that got there just in front of you. And you're trying to stand in line and you know, it's everything just seems more complicated and more difficult. I don't know if any of you are from North Carolina, but I saw some things I've never seen on the interstate yesterday. I saw a guy who's pulling a trailer, right? Typical, loaded down with stuff. There were no tires on the trailer. He was literally just driving on the rims. It's like his tires blew out and he was like, I'm not waiting for help. I'm just gonna get to the next exit, right? And he was just going down the shoulder on the rim, sparks flying. There was one place we got to a construction zone and somebody had pulled off their RV and decided to just make it their own personal KOA. They let down the steps. They had a barbecue grill out. I was like, can you even do that? I mean, so again, I don't know, North Carolinans, you may have to clue me in here, but needless to say, we did not make it home in 10 and a half hours. Here's my point, point A, 
right? We were at a good place, camp, summer camp, had a great week ministering to teenagers. Point B, home, can't wait to get home. Can't wait to eat something other than camp food. Can't wait to sleep in my own bed and see my, my wife. But in between, it's a journey, isn't it? And that journey can be lengthy. That journey can be awkward. That journey has unexpected things that take place. We're all on some kind of a journey. And right now, I'm on a journey. My family and I are between this church family, the church at Station Hill, and the next step of our calling at Brentwood Baptist Church. You're on a journey as a congregation from where we've been. You've only known me as your campus and teaching pastor. And now God has someone new ahead for us as campus and teaching pastor. And in the in-between time, it can just feel awkward. Let's just acknowledge that. We don't always have to like the way that it feels. It's awkward, like a middle school dance, like a country guy who tries to rap in the middle of his song. Like those days when I had to preach to an empty room to a camera, right, during COVID, like you get it done, but it's just, it's just not the same. And that's the way it feels for so many of us right now. And the reason why the book of Philippians is so timely for us, because Paul finds himself in his ministry between one point and the next. Where is Paul at? He's in prison. He doesn't know as he awaits his sentence, what will be next. Emotionally, he has to find himself in a strange place. And yet, here's what we lean into. Paul writes his most joyous letter. You see, it doesn't matter what happens to you from point A to point B. Your joy is not found in your circumstances. Your joy is found in one place and that's in Christ Jesus. My friend Brian Ball says, the book of Philippians is like Paul's giving us a hug. We could all use a hug right now, amen? So let's stand and read the first 11 verses of this book together. Philippians chapter one, verses one through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Instead, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for filling Paul's heart with joy. Joy over his relationship with the church at Philippi. Joy for what he had seen you do. Joy in his confidence that you who began a good work would complete it. God, in the same way, 
as we're all on a journey of some kind, multiple journeys in reality, would we find joy in all circumstances? Not because our circumstances are easy, but because you're in it with us. So open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to you in this place today, Lord Jesus, as we begin this journey through Philippians. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. So I wanna bring back an old friend, a little chart that I put up with you before. Some of you knew, you may not have seen this, but this is a little tool that I use every time I begin to study a new book of the Bible. There's 66 books of the Bible. I've done this for every book of the Bible now, this many years into ministry. And so what we have to be careful that we do when we begin to open up a new book or a chapter or we're flipping around in the Bible is to be sure that we rightly handle the word of God. So part of my job as a pastor is not only to preach, you, to preach to you, but to equip you to handle the word of God for yourself. Because a lot of us make a fundamental mistake when we come to Bible study. The first question we ask is, what does the scripture mean to me? Wrong question. The question to ask is, what does this scripture mean, period? And then we find the biblical principle that applies to us. We don't start with us, we start with the revealed word of God. And then we apply that word to us. And so I wanna put up this little chart that we've used over the years. We call it a context compass. It quickly helps us to orient ourselves, just like a compass when you're hiking, to know where we're at in God's word. We ask the questions, who wrote the book? When was it written? To whom was it written? What type of literature is it? To how was it written? What are the major themes? And all that helps us understand the why. And always we can see within the text of that book of the Bible, some key verses that illustrate for us the why, the thesis statement, if you will, of those books of the Bible. All right, so let's do this for Philippians as we start into this study this month. Who wrote the book? You guys, that was the easy one. Who wrote the book? Paul, right? The apostle Paul writes this letter. He is with Timothy, his protege. When was it written? about 11 years after he planted the church at Philippi. We're in about AD 62 right now. Paul, as I mentioned, is in Rome. He is in prison awaiting his sentence. We'll see that when we get to chapter two. To whom it is written, this is important because this ties to our last series in the book of Acts. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his band of missionaries, his band of church planners, as they're making their way across what's Asia Minor, now the modern day Turkey, right? Uh, They're trying to go one way and the Holy Spirit says no. So they try to go this way, the Holy Spirit says no. Finally, the Holy Spirit leads them across the Aegean Sea to what's called the region of Macedonia or Northern Greece today. I'm sure, and we've all had that experience before in life where God closed doors, where God didn't allow something that we thought was gonna happen to happen. And we're trying to figure out, God, where do you have us? Why do you have us here? 21 years ago, when my wife and I were looking for a home in middle Tennessee over the summer, we could not afford to live in Brentwood or Franklin on a youth minister's salary. So a real estate agent graciously drove us way out here to Spring Hill. We had just moved from, we were moving from Morgan County, Alabama. And so we bought a house in this little community called Spring Hill. And we were a little discouraged by that, that we couldn't afford to live closer to the church, but we knew we needed a home. We needed to start building some equity. We'd had a parsonage at our church in Alabama. And so we were like, all right, this, this must be the house. The people at the Brentwood campus thought we'd moved back to North Alabama back then, 21 years ago. They were like, Spring Hill, like way out there. 
Well, long story short, what did God do? He dropped us in one of the fastest growing communities in this country. We had no idea. We couldn't see that. We didn't have detailed reports. And so God planted us exactly where he wanted us to be that eventually would turn our heart towards this community. And then there were 50 other Brentwood Baptist families that said, you know what? We wanna reach our neighbors too. And we're inviting them to Brentwood and it's too far and it's too big. And it's all of these things. And so they said, we'll bring our church with you into this community. You see, God always is a step ahead of us. So when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, when it seems like, no, Lord, no, no, really? Know that he has the plan in his hand. God had the plan. And so they arrive in Macedonia. They go to a city called Philippi. Interestingly enough, Philippi was a Roman colony. This wasn't just a community, a city under the thumb of the Roman empire. This was actually an outpost of Rome itself. If you lived in the city, you were a citizen. It's a place where a lot of the soldiers, the government officials were given tracts of land. So heavy Roman influence. As a matter of fact, it was nicknamed Little Rome. And that's what Philippi was. So there's no synagogue there. There are not enough Jewish people to have a synagogue. Paul gets to town. That's where he normally started his ministry. He's led down by the riverside and he finds a group of women praying. He shares the gospel and it says, the Holy Spirit opened the heart of a woman named Lydia. She was a successful businesswoman, had come from Asia, had come from Turkey in order to continue her sales, purple dyed goods, extravagant luxury goods. So she was a very successful businesswoman. But as she prayed to receive Christ, as the Holy Spirit opened her heart to receive the gospel, I have no doubt that Paul's like, oh Lord, I get it now. And then not only that, a few weeks later, there's a trafficked young girl She's a slave girl. She has a demonic spirit in her by which she can prophesy and say things. And she's making a lot of money for the men who own her. And she's harassing Paul. And finally, Paul turns, casts that demon out of her. And she is rescued by the gospel. Think about it, the first two people in Europe to be saved, right? From the upper class and from the lowest class possible. The gospel can save anybody, can't it? And then Paul and Silas get thrown in jail because her handlers don't like it, that now their source of income is gone. Paul and Silas, as we talked about last week when we talked about worship, cannot be stopped praising God. And so as they sing, the shackles fall off when the earthquake comes. They could have just lit out of there in a hurry like you and I would have done. But the Philippian jailer, the guy overseeing the prison knows the consequence for an empty jail. And so he begins to commit suicide and Paul says, don't do it, we're all still here. Paul talked all of those prisoners into staying and not running, don't miss that fact. And now the guy is truly in awe. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul shares with him, he saved his entire household, is saved and rescued. And the church at Philippi is born an upper-class businesswoman, a slave girl who is being trafficked, a blue-collar Philippian jailer, and you begin to see a beautiful picture of the church because people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, all rescued by the same Jesus, all saved. And Paul loved that, that he had a front-row seat to watch what God was doing in that time and in that place. And I don't think Paul ever got over it. It's part of his affection for that church. It's part of why I will always love the church at Station Hill, no matter what ministry assignment God gives us as a family, 
because we've had a front row seat to the last, for the last 13 and a half years to watch God build this church, to watch lives be changed, to watch addictions overcome, to watch marriages be healed, to watch children be raised up, to watch missionaries launched out of here, to watch two congregations be sent from here into other communities to share the good news of Jesus. It has been amazing to watch. Paul loved that church and I love you guys. So what does he do? He writes him a thank you note. That's really what the book of Philippians is. So thank you. Now, the specific occasion was a guy by the name of Epaphroditus was sent from the church at Philippi. By the way, there's a name for you creative parents out there, right? Who might be expecting Epaphroditus. I don't hear many of those these days. So anyway, he is sent with money to bless Paul. And so Paul in return writes this letter. My mama had a, a unique way of impressing the importance of thank you notes on me and my brothers. When we got a gift, we were not allowed to take it out of the box and play with it until we wrote the thank you notes. Paul must have been trained good by his mama too because he writes a thank you note to the Philippians. And while he's at it, he sprinkles in a few other things. Why? Because preacher's gonna preach. So what does he do in this pastoral letter? He of course writes about his love and affection for them. He exhorts them towards Christ's likeness and unity. He also throws in some warnings about false teachers and some of the challenges they were facing. The church at Philippi was not perfect. There is no perfect church. And as the old saying goes, if, there, if you find a perfect church, don't show up because the moment that you or I show up, it's not perfect anymore. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners saved by grace, laboring together to love God more, to grow in Christ and to make him known. And that was the church at Philippi. And that context helps us understand the why. Paul wanted the church at Philippi to know that no matter their circumstance, only true joy and true unity could be found in Jesus Christ. It's the only place you're gonna find it. It's the only place you're gonna find it. The theme verse of Philippians could be Philippians 1, 21. You may wanna highlight it, underline it. It's like the thesis where Paul says, on my journey from point A to point B, I'm in prison and whatever God has for me next, here's the way I'm gonna live. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if they choose to execute me, so be it. I get to go be with my heavenly father. I win. If I stay here, I win. Why? Because I get to continue to serve. I get to walk with incredible people like you. I get to watch the gospel on the move through these churches that we've planted. Paul had a burning desire to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth, to Spain, right? Maybe he gets to see the fulfillment of that. No matter what came his way, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So with that, let's jump into what he tells us in this letter as he opens three ways the church at Philippi brings Paul joy. Number one, joy in prayer. After his greeting, grace and peace, he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. So what Paul does is he says, listen, I'm grateful for everything I've seen God do. I'm even grateful for all of you. <laughs> now we all know, right, as a pastor, there are people who encourage you and there are people who are challenging and the church at Philippi was no different. We'll see that as we work our way through the letter. But Paul says, I'm grateful for every single part of the body of Christ that's here because we all have something to learn from each other. 
Paul says, I'm thankful for everything we've experienced in ministry together. No doubt there'd been some highs. There's been some highs for us as the church at Station Hill. Still thrills my soul to remember as the Brentwood campus voted to launch the first campus in fall of 2008, we said, hey, before we even had a launch team, we're gonna do a Christmas Eve service in the community that we're gonna be a part of. We didn't have a place to meet, so we rented for one evening on Christmas Eve 2008, the old school Spring, High, Spring Hill High Gymnasium. Anybody know where that's at? Anybody been in that building before, right? It's ancient. It's built in like the 20s. What do we do at the end of every Christmas Eve service? We light candles. It occurred to me the moment we began to light all these candles that there's about 90 years of lacquer on this gym floor. We drop one of these candles, boof, but we didn't. And it was a beautiful picture and I got emotional to see about 140 individual candles that were lit saying, we're gonna bring the light of my life, the light of our family into this community. Whatever it takes, we're gonna do it. It was an awesome moment, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget our very first baptism. We had a young person in the church who came to saving faith in Jesus, wanted to be baptized, and we were leasing space behind the Kroger Marketplace, and I realized we didn't have a baptistry. Like, what are we even doing? We're a Baptist church. We gotta fix that. So I went to Tractor Supply on Saturday, and I bought a horse trough, cleaned the thing out, sat it next to the piano. Our stage was a lot smaller at the time. And that horse trough was awesome for that kid's baptism. That horse trough wasn't so awesome. We had about a 300 pound guy get baptized a few weeks later. And our associate pastor was excited, dunked him. And guess what happens when you baptize a huge guy? You just place a whole lot of water. So water went flying, it soaked the wall. The stage got part of the keyboard wet. We had to dry it out that next week. But man, we laughed and we praised God because we're seeing lives changed. It was fun. And we realized we, we better have another place to baptize people. So we started going to Deer Run last Sunday in August, it was so fun. Every year we baptized 20, 25, 30 people. We'd hear their testimonies. And you know, a little moment for me as pastor every year, it was a milestone because I'd stay around to clean up to be sure we put everything back the way it needed to. And it was just me at the camp. And I'd just sit there thanking God that we got to be a part of these life change stories. Like I could have died and gone to heaven right then and been a happy man, because I got to see it. I remember the Sunday that we moved into this facility. We never dreamed as we're just starting off in a middle school cafeteria, as we're, we're leasing space and trying to figure out that the Lord would lead us to buy 30 acres of land. There was a God story in that, that God would give us the ability to build this facility. Get this, debt free. What young little church start gets to build something like this debt free? Well, thanks to the generosity of our brothers and sisters at Brentwood, we built this thing debt free. And that first Sunday, man, you guys exploded in worship. I mean, the choir got out like the first line and you guys just stood up and cheered. I'll never forget it. Those are incredible moments, incredible moments in the journey. But we've had our hard moments too, in which we've faced spiritual attack, which our staff has come under attack, which we've watched you guys do battle a variety of ways, walked with you through all kinds of hardships, job change. We've buried a lot of saints in our years as a church because God gave us an intergenerational church. And so we've walked through some hard things as well. Paul says, I thank God for every remembrance, the highs and the lows, why? Because of course the highs we celebrate, but the lows forge us together, don't they? They teach us to depend on God in prayer. We come to the end of our own resources 
and we have to depend totally on God. And so Paul's heart was full. He gives the world, the culture, a different definition of joy. It's not dependent on circumstances. Paul sets the tone for the whole letter in these first few words when he says, I pray for you with joy. Paul is so helpful to us, to all of us who are tempted to think that we need something more than Jesus to have joy. Our world peppers us every day. You need this experience. You need this product. You need to drive this car. You need to have this level of achievement. You need to have this level of success in order to have joy. Paul says, nope. In Philippians 3, we'll see. I tried it all. Paul will tout out his resume and say, it's all rubbish. There's only one thing that gives joy. And that's the security of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Point two, Paul says, joy and partnership. He gives us joy in partnership. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul knows that they have been on this journey together. The word here for partnership is the Greek word koinonia. Turn to your neighbor and say koinonia. Way to go, you spoke Greek today. Well done. Now, as a good Baptist, I was raised, born, buttered, battered, bruised, Baptist, right? So I know that the word koinonia means fellowship. That's the way it's translated. And a fellowship to a Baptist means one thing first. What is that? Yeah, food, the potluck. We find some excuse all the time. The first little church I served in, that little church of farmers, every Sunday, Tanya and I were blessed because they found somebody's birthday or anniversary or Lottie Moon or Annie Arms, something to celebrate, to have a potluck. It was a blast. Now, hear me. Good fellowship does include food. Jesus enjoyed table fellowship with many people, but it's bigger than just food, isn't it? It's partnership. The translation here is right. It means deep relationship and deep gospel partnership because the deepest bonds are forged when you're on mission together. Ask a soldier, ask somebody who's played on a high achieving sports team, when you are bonded together for a common cause, it unites us in a unique way. And Paul had bonded with the Philippians over establishing a church in the heart of little Rome. Paul had bonded with lots of people in the New Testament over the mission of the gospel, his mission teams in particular. How many of you have been on a mission journey? I wanna see a show of hands, all right? Awesome. The rest of you, I wanna challenge you. Pray about going on a mission journey. Why? Because it is a catalyst for understanding this kind of partnership in the gospel. As you spend a week or two with folks from our church, all of a sudden you're on an airplane with them and you're uncomfortably close. You eat meals with them in all kinds of a variety of settings and on the go, right? And, and on the fly, all different kinds of ways. You get really close to people in a hurry, but all of that margin, time on a plane, time over coffee in the restaurants, you get to know your fellow church members. You get to hear their testimonies and their stories. You get to learn about their strengths about what they're passionate about. And then you go somewhere and we partner with one of our Hope for the World mission partners who's already there established doing good work and they need some encouragement. And by your presence, you show up and you provide some energy and excitement and you provide some help, some hands and some feet for things that they long to do, but they just don't have the manpower or the resources to do. And then all of a sudden your team, it's always amazing. God puts the right skills, the right personalities, the right spiritual gifts together. 
to meet that need for that week. And you get to see what we should see in the church all the time. You get to see this little picture of gospel partnership and you come home and I watch you guys, you're best buds now. Like you sat next to each other in church for years, but you didn't even know each other's name. And now you're bonded in a way. Why? Gospel partnership. Of course, mission journeys aren't the only way to do that, but they are a microcosm. They're a picture of what happens when the church comes together to serve. Our students are gonna come back from New Orleans bonded in a different way. Why? Because they encountered and faced things together for the sake of the gospel. There were moments they had to pray. There were moments they had to discern. There was hard work that they had to do. And Paul says, I'm grateful because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. One of the things that's interesting is you gotta pay attention to Paul's words that he uses. He uses the word for joy or rejoice 16 times in this little letter. He uses the word for thought or attitude at 10. And he uses the word for gospel nine. So when we think about joy, Paul is not merely saying, be joyful for the sake of joyfulness. He's saying, be joyful for the sake of the gospel. That's where you're going to find the joy that you're looking for when you advance the gospel together because you realize, oh, this is how God made me. This is why God put me here. This is what I'm supposed to do. And there is a deep and abiding joy that comes with that reality. I want you to lean in during this season, Station Hill to verse six. You may wanna underline it as well, highlight it. I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, God inaugurated this work called the church at Station Hill. I know sometimes people shorthand will say, well, that's Jay's church. Nope, it's not. Let me correct you quickly. This is God's work. He inaugurated it. And I do remember the overwhelming feeling, our very first gathering on a Sunday morning in February of 2010, in that prayer and altar moment, when I realized, Lord willing, Lord willing, there will be a body of believers called the church at Station Hill from now until Jesus returns, glorifying God, discipling, making disciples, discipling others, and sending people out into our community and into our world. Man, that's an awesome thought to have. God inaugurated that work. There's not very many times in your life you get to be a part of something that's bigger than you. That was one of those moments for me. And I didn't even realize it until that moment. So God started this work and look what he's done. God will sustain this work. You all have been a blessing to me, to this church. As I've watched, I tell people the joy of my life is watching God build a church from scratch. They started the, the seedbed was a Bible study, a lady's Bible study in her house led by my wife. And look what God's done now 15 years later. Why? Because God has brought the church. Make no mistake about it. The church is not these four walls. You are the church because we don't go to church. Oh, you guys, I know it's a holiday weekend, right? I keep throwing you softballs. We don't go to church. We are the church. And here's a part of the problem of the church in North America. We have superimposed a business model on the church of Jesus. And we wonder why more people aren't being reached, why there's not being more life change. In that model, we make the pastor, the CEO, the big dog, calls all the shots. The staff, well, they're the people we pay to do all the ministry. And so we put our money in the offering plate and then we want them to do our bidding, right? Because they're the ones we're paying to do the work. What does that leave you to be? Consumers of religious programs and events. 
that is unbiblical and I'll argue it's demonic because it is not the way the New Testament tells us to do church. The reason why people complain about the temperature of the room or complain about the color of the carpet, once again, look down, we've removed that temptation. Although I did have somebody after the first service tell me, but pastor, you should have seen how bad the carpet was in the church I grew up in. It was not leading to Thanksgiving and joy in our lives. Point well made. But why do people get all upset about these kind of details? Because they're not focused on the mission. They have nothing else to put their energy towards. The Bible says the role of the pastor is to be the shepherd of the flock, to lead you towards Christ's likeness, to pray for you, to align the church with New Testament principles, to be the primary communicator of God's word. So I labor in the word to bring to you what you need, what's gonna nourish and feed you as the flock. What's the role of the staff? Ephesians 4.11, to equip you, to equip you for acts of service so that the body of Christ is built up. You see, you are the body of Christ. You are not a consumer. You are supposed to be a participant. And so if you're not serving, then you're being disobedient to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 4, something else Paul wrote. Paul says, you know what Jesus did? He won the victory. And to the victor belong the spoils. And guess what Jesus did? He didn't keep the gifts for himself. He gave them to his church. He gave them to you. Not so that you could sit on them, so that you could use them. So find your place in the body, find your way to serve and to be a part of what God is doing. That's what happens in gospel partnership. God bonds us together. He uses every part of the body. I love that Paul realized that he was the shepherd, he was the planter, he was the pastor, but he continually calls himself a co-laborer in the gospel. He had his role, but he knew the church had theirs as well. The same way, right? Church isn't about me. It's not about let's come to see if the pastor can entertain us today. No, I have a responsibility before God to equip you, but you have a responsibility to bring to this body what God has put in you to serve and to give, to pray and to go. And so we all have to do our part. That's what that gospel partnership is all about. And so God provides that. So he who began this work called the church's station hell, We'll continue to grow this work as we are faithful and obedient, every single one of us. And here's what my heart holds on to for you. Here's the only reason I can surrender and go to Brentwood, because I believe with all of my heart that these words are true, that he who began this good work will be faithful to complete it. I know God's going to do great things in the days ahead. I know that he's gonna bring you the right campus and teaching pastor, continue to pray for our search team, very encouraged by the candidates that we have, but pray that they will be in unity and clarity about who God's man is, because he will lead you. God knows exactly what you need for the next chapter in the life of this church. Joy and partnership. And number three, joy and affection. This part kind of almost cracks me up because this is the apostle Paul. And in my mind, right, Paul, especially by now in his life, man, he's got some scars. The dude is battle-tested. 
It says in 2 Corinthians, bro has been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's been left for dead, he's pastored these churches, he's traveled all of these miles, he's gone without, all of these things. So you think, man, Paul, he's gone toe to toe at Mars Hill with the philosophers, he's gotten in Peter's face, like Paul is one tough dude. Listen to his affection in these words, listen to Paul's tender side. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. I mean, that could have come from a pop song right there, right? Have you in my heart? And you are all partners with me in grace, in my imprisonment and in my confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ. It's not superficial, right? It's not just Paul feels good about these people. He really loves them in Christ. There's a special bond and I love you guys with that bond, I do. It's what makes this in-between stage so challenging. But because I love you so much, I've got to model for you these truths. And with Paul, these are the words that I would pray over you today. Pray this, verse nine, that your love will keep on growing. Keep on growing, church at Station Hill. Never stop, keep on growing. Keep on growing in what? In knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior Translation, be satisfied with nothing less than Christ. There's nothing else that will satisfy your soul. Be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled. Oh, I wanna see you filled, church. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Man, I love you and you have loved us well. And part of the reason why I know you're healthy and you're gonna get through this is because you have not lost your sense of humor. And let me demonstrate how. I arrived back from camp, got here early this morning after getting in late last night to find a box, a gift on my desk. Now you guys have been amazing to send me cards and notes. Somebody even made a t-shirt I showed you, but this was a new one. The box said this, Jay and Tanya, you are loved and you are sent. Illinois, Alabama, and Tennessee, you went. You're on the move again. Put this gift on your new desk, way up north in Brentwood, I guess. We will never forget you and Tanya since you were loved and you are sent. And I was like, what's gonna be in this box? This could be scary. And so I reached into the box to find a bobblehead of me. <laughs> now, whoever created this is anonymous. There was no note on it. I've got to talk to you because my hair looks a little gray. I'm a little disappointed. I am pretty fit though, I like that. So anyway, well done, well done, whoever you are out there. And so pretty fun right there. But I love that, yeah, thank you, praise God. I love that about you guys, that you get it, right? It's a different place to be, but you know that if we're gonna live sent, we've all gotta live sent on this mission together. So as we live sent, let me give you quickly five challenges that we see in Philippians to our church. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on these today, but these are threads as we set up this series that I want you to watch for. Number one is this, living sin is costly, but Jesus is worth it, amen? It costs us something to release some of our people. I've watched church after church that's done well begin to struggle and die. Why? Because they begin to hoard to themselves their money and their people. We love what we have going on here. So we're gonna keep it to ourselves. 
Well, as you see in the Bible, our God is a sending God. He sent his one and only son. He sent his very best to die for us. God sends his people. And I believe that God blesses churches that send. So sending is costly, but it's worth it. We love Brandon Abbott. We love Darlene. We love the, the team of people that we launched on Easter into the Columbia community. I miss seeing them every Sunday. There's a cost to that. But you know what I'm excited about? Brandon's telling us about the gospel conversations they're having with people. Brandon's telling us about the people who live in the neighborhood around the church who are like, whoa, we can't believe. All of a sudden there's all this activity at this church. What's taking place here? What's happening? We love the stories that are already emerging of how God is using them. So is, it, is there a cost? Yes, there's a cost, but it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. We launched Ridley and Lisa Barron out of here to Chapel Hill five years ago now. Now that church, the way God orchestrated that story is amazing. And Ridley will be here to tell you about it. But the reality is, is it cost to send them. We missed them. But now that church is running over 400 people in that community. God is on the move all around. It costs to sin, but it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. Number two, we have to fight for our joy in Christ. When you're in this point between point A and point B, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to lose the big picture. It's easy to be overwhelmed. I am, I confess that to you. There's some days I'm a wreck, right? But the scripture says in Psalms chapter five, verses 11 and 12, that God defends the joy of the righteous those who have been made right in Christ Jesus. And so I hold on to those truths. We have to fight for our joy. We also, number three, need to contend for unity in the spirit. We don't create unity, the Holy Spirit creates it. But during seasons of change and transition, the enemy loves to try to get a foothold in here and a foothold in there. The enemy loves speculation. The enemy loves fear. The enemy loves to pray. The enemy loves to come and steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus brings life and life more abundantly. So let's contend together during this season for unity in the spirit. Number four, let's be generous and give like Macedonians. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Did you realize the church of Philippi was one of those three churches that begged to give even in a hard time? So let's be generous with our time and our talent, our treasure and our testimony. Because when we are, when we give with glad and sincere hearts, it honors the God who is a giver. So you have always been a giving church. Let's not stop giving. Let's not stop going. Let's not stop praying. During the season, we continue that same momentum towards the mission that we've always had. Because number five, let's give the world a picture of the coming kingdom of God. You see, when people showed up at Philippi, the city, they say, huh, look, little Rome. When people see the church at Station Hill, they should look at us and say, huh, that's a little picture of the great big kingdom of Jesus. That's what we want them to say about our church. Will you bow your heads with me as we come to this time of response this morning? I'm so grateful for the chance to kick off this series. I'm so grateful for you. I understand the affection that Paul's talking about because I have it for you guys and I always will. And I believe with all of my heart that the one who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to see it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That journey that we're on in ministry, the symbolic representative of the journey that you may be on with your family, 
with your career, with your calling. Know that the good news means that Jesus is with you on that journey. And yes, there are days when it's hard. Yes, there are days when it's a battle. Yes, we live in a broken, fallen world. But Jesus is with you and he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. So find joy, not because it's easy, but because Jesus is with you. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you that when we need a hug in scripture, you give us one. We thank you that we can look back and look forward at the same time to all that you've done and all that you're going to do. We thank you, Jesus, for what your blood has done. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing these words in response. Say thank you.